what these movements do is to harden uh, and even radicalize these these kind of boundaries and give the people who let's say are the victim of unemployment of, of, of growing social inequality they give them a fake explanation for their uh, dire situation welcome to a history of xenophobia from the gold mines to the rise of the far right today my name is Ariel Glynn and I'm the host of this History Hub podcast series. History Hub is based at the School of History at University College Dublin in Ireland. You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhub.ie. You can also follow us on various social media and if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhub.ie. Leo Lukasen is director of the International Institute for Social History in Amsterdam, which is one of the world's leading research institutes on social history. He is also a professor of global labor and migration history at Leiden University. He is the author of a huge corpus of work on migration history that would take too long to list here, but I will instead highlight some significant texts relating to nativism that he has produced. These include a widely read and cited book, The Immigrant Threat, The Integration of Old and new migrants in Western Europe since 1850, and an important article written with his brother Jan Lukasen entitled The Strange Death of Dutch Tolerance, the Timing and Nature of the Pessimist Turn in the Dutch Migration Debate. In response to increasing nativism during Europe's so-called refugee crisis in recent years, Leo wrote Peeling an Onion, the Refugee Crisis from a Historical Perspective, to try to explain the apocalyptic reaction to the increase of those in search of asylum in Europe. Today, while we might touch on the, these texts, our main focus will be on a new book that Leo was writing about mob violence against labor migrants. So you're, you're currently writing this book on mob violence towards labor migrants from a global perspective. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us how, how did the book come about and what are the main research questions you hope to answer? Yeah, well, this this is a large project because I have only limited time to really write. So I do it in bits and pieces. Well, in, in a way, it, it goes back to, to let's say, my, um, my university years when I was uh, studying social and economic history at Leiden and was very much inspired by um, the uh, professor of social history at the time, Dick von Arkel, who had a very sociological approach to, um, let's say, explaining uh, pogroms uh, um, uh, against Jews. Um, and he had a very rigorous comparative approach, mm -hmm. trying to explain why in, in, in certain periods, in certain places, people resorted to, let's say, pogroms against the Jews, um, uh, while in others they didn't. So he was really looking for a more, yeah, you might say a universal explanatory model that would formulate the necessary, uh, yeah, the, the necessary conditions uh, and sufficient conditions under which such mob violence against Jews would erupt. Doing that, he was also working and trying to, to see to what extent you could e expand this to let's say, racism uh, or discrimination in general, not only against Jews, but also against other outgroups, as you might say. So my newest project is in a way very much indebted to, let's say, this, this initial uh, 
uh, a socialization as a historian, as a young historian, and, and it's not very original in that sense. I'm, I mean, I'm really following, standing on his shoulders. Uh, having become a migration scholar, uh, this is something that that's well, let's say, occurred to me, especially during this refugee crisis that you already mentioned, which again urged me to think about, let's say, uh, groups of migrants and, and the very the very different way they were uh, they they have been treated and, and are treated. At the same time, this, this this converges or merges with my interest in global history, and which I see as a, a as a very valuable development because it allows us also to to think about more universal kind of mechanisms, and and, and in that sense, uh, um, so it, it goes let's say a little bit against the more area studies, let's say, which very much. Uh, Stress the context, context, and, and and the specificities, which is fine. But nevertheless, I so my my new book is trying to see whether there is you, you could construct something of a let's say uh, model um, that helps us to understand why in at certain times um, mob violence against labor migrants erupts and why it doesn't in others. I've chosen for labor migrants specifically because if you enlarge the category, um, then it becomes much more difficult to see what is really happening. So I deliberately limited myself to label my can see where this gets me. Also, be, and, 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 and because there are so many variables that might be in play, um, I thought it would be wise not to, let's say, I could have, you, you could also think about, as, 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 as von Arkel did in the 1980s, to think about our groups in general. But I think that is a very difficult uh, enterprise, at least, at least too difficult for me. Uh, so that's uh, uh, why I limited myself to labor migrants. Um, having said that, it's not only that, let's say, the book wants to understand specific mob violence, because this, this is quite unusual. I mean, mostly this doesn't happen. Yeah. But by nevertheless, by focusing on mob violence, you, you also learn a lot about uh, situations in which there is a lot of discrimination uh, against uh, labor migrants without mob violence. But, but the, 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 the focus on mob violence also uh, offers a lot of new insights into, let's say, other kinds of segregation and discrimination and racism uh, where mob violence is lacking. So it, 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 it offers you a a way um, of looking at, at a much broader painting than, than only, let's say, these, these quite unusual uh, and exec- exceptional um, uh, instances of mob violence. You know, you've said it's global, and I think you'll pick up on some, some of the examples you use in your study, but it is also very historical. And as you mentioned in the introduction that you sent me, you know, most of the focus on on mob violence and also nativism towards migrants very much is linked to the the modern nation state. But you go even you go much further back to medieval and early modern England. What what can that tell us about mob violence towards labor migrants? Yeah, I think in, in general you can at least, I mean, I'm in my limited knowledge of world history, which is mostly limited to the let's say, uh, the Atlantic, uh, North Atlantic realm, you could say. 
is that most examples that we have of mob violence against labor migrants is from the modern period. That is to say, from the time of the nation state almost, so 19th and 20th century. And this would lead you to a preliminary conclusion that apparently the nation state is one of these necessary conditions. Yeah? And this is also something that you find in, uh, for the rest of, of a very valuable work by uh, uh, Andreas Wimmer, for example, a sociology, uh, sociologist who makes these links very explicitly. And I think that that's not nonsense, but it's too limited because it does not explain why in certain contexts, more violence against labor migrants is, has an earlier pedigree. So, and especially England in, in the early modern period and the late Middle Ages or the high Middle Ages, late Middle Ages and the early modern period, uh, and especially London, uh, there are a number of incidents that, let's say, uh, uh, where you can see more violence against labor migrants, especially from Flanders and Italy uh, at the time. Um, well, uh, uh, that, of course, the forces you to uh, uh, to acknowledge that it's that it's, apparently it's not, also without the nation state. Let's uh, say this this phenomenon is is possible. So I look more, um, that, that's why I was forced to look more into these cases. So what, what is happening there? And well, my preliminary conclusion so far is what you see happening in England in the early, in, in the, already in the late Middle Ages and early modern period is that it already foreshadows to some extent the nation state. So in that sense, let's say the nation state argument still holds, you might say, um, because what you there see is that much more than in other parts of Europe, the uh, the central state, so the crown, the privy council, has a stronger position than in other parts of Europe. Uh, again, I'm, I'm now limiting myself uh, to Europe. In uh, making this distinction between the English and foreigners, and whereas in, for example, in the Dutch Republic, let's say um, it, it's much more decentralized. And it's, let's say distinctions are made at the urban level. So, for, for example, Leiden, where I live, uh, foreigners were everyone who was not born in Leiden, uh, whether it was five kilometers from Leiden or, or, or 5,000, that didn't matter. In England, you see an earlier kind of national distinction arise, which was then could be instrumentalized by workers who rightly or wrongly perceived at certain moments uh, immigrants as uh, competitors at the labor market. Um, and that's what you see happening in a number of these incidents from the 13th and 14th century onwards. Um, so this strengthened, the, and, and in a way it, it, it supports Wimmer's argument about the nation state, but it makes it more subtle and also, when you broaden it in, in a more world historical perspective, also pushes you, it pushes me to look at, because England is not the only, in, in the early modern period, it's not the only state where, let's say, the central state imposes itself more on the local and, and, and uses these kind of ethnic boundary, uh, boundaries and is engaged in ethnic boundary making. Uh, Japan, for example, is an interesting case where this already happens in the 16th, 17th century. Only there, of course, there, there, there is a different kind of uh, dynamic because, let's say, foreigners are excluded from Japan. So it, it, it's, 
only then in certain harbor cities eh, that that can be negotiated, but even under very strict rules. So because they don't do not admit, let's say, foreign labor migrants from outside of Japan, this of course also explains why there's no more violence because there's there's no one to 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 attack, so so to speak. But I think that it's um, and and that's something I still have to do is to look at let's say similar cases as England, England in the early modern period and even before, and see uh, whether and when this coincides with let's say. The, um, uh, the presence of, of labor migrants that do not belong to this national or proto-national entity, um, what then happens? So, so for that, this, this, let's say this looking more specifically at England was very useful. And you also talk about how modern racism has its roots in medieval and early modern Europe. So how did, you know, you talk in particular about the expulsion of Jews and Muslims or Moriscos from uh, the Iberian Peninsula. So how did the targeting of these internal religious enemies in Europe influence the racial hierarchies that Europeans later employed uh, beyond Europe? Yeah, um, well, that's something that I um, that I borrow from more recent analyses of, let's say, yeah, a, a proto-national racism. Um, and there's this book by Geraldine Hang, the, the, the Invention of Race in the Euro- European Middle Ages from Cambridge 2018, uh, argues that, let's say, racism is not only something that, 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 that emerged with the um, uh, in the 18th century and then especially in the 19th century, closely related to the Enlightenment and 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 the, uh, uh, let's say make, making all kinds of classifications and and, and hierarchies, um, but it has earlier roots. Um, and this is something that has been argued by others before, but but I think not not as forcefully as Heng has done. And I think that um, I mean this is still a debate, but but there are all kind of examples, of course, within Europe, but I'm sure also in other parts of the world where uh, notions of her- heredity of blood are already prevalent. Well, I think the best example we have, of course, is the Limpieza de Sangre um, legislation in in Spain in the 15th, 16th century where it's, let's say, it was not not enough for people, for non-Catholics um, uh, to, to convert, uh, like Muslims and Jews, but uh, because they still were sus- suspected of, of practicing their religion. And, well, this, this still fits in a more religious kind of frame, but uh, it went beyond because, it, let's say, it, it, it did matter also later on, if let's say in your uh, uh, one of your forefathers or mothers uh, could be traced, basically the same kind of reasoning that the Nazis did with with Jews and before and during the Second World War. I mean, the, the, the criterion, for example, for Dutch Jewish Dutch or to be um, targeted and, and labeled as Jew was that that you at least had one of your grandparents was Jewish or whatever that meant. Uh, so, so it has earlier roots. And, but, as, but in my view, uh, what is especially uh, has, has contributed to, let's say, the emergence of a racial hierarchy is slavery. 
uh, especially in the Atlantic, both the southern and, and northern Atlantic, which has well, the, the, the dehumanizing of African men and women who were taken, up. So more than 10 million were taken to the New World, made necessary, I think, also to, to legitimize, let's say, for those who were involved in these actions, uh, to legitimize what they did was to argue that they were not, these were not proper humans. So, so then you could treat them like that. Yeah. So it's uh, it, there is a kind of a functionality uh, there, and 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 this grows. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's still it's, it's a very uh, uh, liquid and volatile kind of uh, situation, and, and there are many different ways people looked at people with black skin or with, with African roots. But nevertheless, you see this growing long before the 19th century. So I think this. Uh, this this European expansion and and, and slavery um, and, and well, later on imperialism, but both in in the Atlantic, but also in in in, in Asia, um, because of, let's say all kinds of let's say very similar kinds of uh, enslavement that took place in in in, uh, in Southeast Asia as well under the Dutch and the English and, and the French, etc. So that's why I think that's the second reason why the early modern period matters, if you want to understand what happens later on. Yeah, so it's it's great to have a historical perspective because so much of the research is very contemporary, you know, talking about nativism. And so it's nice to have these early modern roots being uh, assessed and also integrated into larger studies. Moving quickly just to the 19th century, you talk about how violence towards mob violence towards labor migrants was often uh, provoked by a kind of mix of perceived identity threat and kind of socioeconomic threat you know and this motivated members of the in-group to attack the out-group mm-hmm. was can, can you say whether one was more salient than the other or was it just this interaction that was required it's you need both um I mean, if you only so, so both meaning you need um, boundary making um, and hierarchy, and racism can do the job, but other kinds of boundary making and hierarchy as well, because that distinguishes you from the other. So I mean, there's an in-group, out-group uh, mechanism, which which can some sometimes even be local. Um, uh, uh, people from another region that are perceived as a, as a threat, but. Let's say so that at many levels, outgroup and in-group making can occur. But this is what you absolutely need, um, and and this can even, and I mean this can even occur at the, uh, let's say at the level of a factory, um, and uh, where people may even come from the same, let's say the, the same have the same background, but in when strikes occur. Also, there is an in, and 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 there are part of the workers um, uh, are scabs uh, and 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 continue working. I mean, there's a this is also an in group out group mechanism, of course. But what what we're talking about here is an, a, yes, you need this in group out group, but, but especially along uh, uh, ethnic lines, and and uh, and this this uh, uh, is then linked to larger processes in society, which. Uh, make these distinctions on, on national, ethnic, or uh, racialized uh, lines. 
And, uh, but you need at the second time, that is not enough because you can see them everywhere. Um, and and most, mostly this does not occur to mob violence against labor migrants. Um, because in many cases, let's say labor markets are segmented, I bifurcated, and there's no direct competition. So think of apartheid in, in South Africa, uh, although also there are instances of competition at the same time, but, but mostly it's not. Or the, uh, even a better example, let's say what you see now or in the last half a century in the Gulf states, um, where let's say the natives are uh, completely shielded off the, uh, the labor market of, of the immigrants from South and Southeast Asia. So then there's no direct competition. There's no competition at all. But uh, once there is competition um, and, and, and let's say the boundary making is in place, well, then uh, it becomes, let's say, uh, the situation becomes more uh, serious. And, and the chances that um, because you think you have more rights uh, uh, than the outsiders, um, but at the same time, the outsiders, you have to compete for them for work and for housing, for example. Yeah, then, then let's say um, uh, the conditions for the outbreak of mob violence are there. Uh, and, and that shows, again, that focusing only on these, uh, on these, these quite exceptional cases of mob violence also teaches you uh, a great deal about a much larger context, because it also teaches you why it doesn't happen. Um, and sorry, then, then, and then of come, you come to these theories by Bernatzic and, and Olzak about ethnic competition, split labor markets, who also argue this. Eh? Only in, the, in their cases, what, what is not explained, and I think problematic, is that um, the boundaries are just taken as given. Uh, they do not problematize why, uh, let's say, Chinese should be considered as different. Um, so it, it's, yeah, it, it, it's reprodu- it, it is, in a, in a way, uh, reproducing the prevailing uh, boundaries uh, that, that are there at, at this moment. So, so I think that what Bonatzic and Olzak and others have done is, is, is valuable, but it's not enough. So, yeah, just even applying what you said there to that's uh, another phase that you also look at in the introduction, which is what's happened in the last 50 or 60 years or so. I, I know when discussing Europe, people like Will Kimlicka and also Rachel Gibson, they say that, you know, both are necessary cultural and economic kind of threat, but they feel that the cultural threat is more powerful than the economic threat. But I think maybe with you're looking at labor migrants, that, that it's more complicated. Are uh, the, yeah, you could, you could say that the economic threat is culturalized. Um, <coughs> I think so. I don't think I don't see this as, a, as in opposition. Um, uh, but I think that, uh, again, as I said, once the economic threat is casted in, in, in um, ethnic or racial terms, yeah, and then um, uh, that, that's what you what what you see happening, oh, and and also what uh, well, political scientists of course, there's a whole literature on uh, on the radical and extreme right and how they use these kind of concepts in order to explain, let's say, the the social social inequalities in their societies, and that's uh, and I think and, and so in, in in that sense, my work also touches upon that uh, because it's um, uh, 
uh, yeah, what, what these movements do is to uh, to harden uh, and even radicalize these these kind of boundaries um, and give the people who let's say are the victim of unemployment of 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 of, of growing social inequality they give them a fake explanation for their uh, dire situation being the outsiders and uh, and this of course is uh, fits in a kind of more neoliberal um, uh, ideology um, that uh, uh, which hides let's say the real um, uh, structural uh, causes of their position which of course are political and economic um, um, but let's say outsiders can very easily be be used as, as scapegoats. Yeah. Um, something that always puzzles me, or, or at least I use it as a, I think an interesting case study with my students, is why uh, the Chinese were targeted on the west coast of the United States in the mid and late 19th century, as opposed to uh, Italians or Eastern Europeans or other various Europeans, you know, that the, the number of Chinese coming in was not that high, yet there was all this attention focused on Chinese migrants as opposed to European migrants. Is that because they, the, the other European migrants could kind of become part of this group? You know, you talk about groupism, uh, whereas the, the Chinese couldn't or, or uh, were excluded from doing so? Yeah, I think I think, and, and Adam McKeon uh, has has written about this, and among many others. Um, I think what you see in the nineteenth century that there are two, let's say, there are all uh, all kinds of boundaries, also religious boundaries. Well, think of the Irish, uh, uh, both in England um, and in the U.S., who were also targeted at at times. Um, uh, and the same is true for Italians. And Donna Gabaccia has written about that, for example. Um, so let's say um, uh, also within what we now consider as the white uh, as white Europeans um, uh, the, at the time, uh, the, let's say the boundaries were uh, were differently. But there is a difference in let's say in hierarchy. Uh, I think that in the end, and that's also well, let's say all, all the books why the Irish became white, and and and, and in a way the that's also accounts for for Italians and, and and other Southern Europeans or Eastern Europeans, is that in the end, let's say there was a a overarching uh, ethnic boundaries which distinguished Europeans from non-Europeans, and and so Asians as a, a very broad category and and uh, and blacks uh, uh, people in the uh, originally coming from. Um, uh, well, descending from 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 uh, enslaved Africans or some yeah uh, uh, free blacks, for example, in the, in the mid nineteenth century in the, in the U.S., they um, in the end dominate much and, and and are much deeper and much more difficult to uh, to evaporate than let's say these at the time also quite I mean people really uh, thought of Irish and Catholics in general as a as a major threat, but in the end, it um, uh, uh, we can just uh, uh, conclude that it it was easier for Irish, Italians, and, and, and others to to become white, and and that is also one of the strategies 
they could use and sometimes use was to uh, become, let's say, to, to, to engage in, let's say, mob violence against, uh, against blacks or against Chinese, because that was that, that, that uh, stressed their, let's say, wannabe membership of the white group and showing that they uh, understood where the real boundary lay. Um, so I think that these kind of mechanisms um, explain partly why, let's say, Chinese were, uh, were targeted um, uh, much more. Um, uh, because the, the, this, uh, this was a, yeah, and, and, and uh, it, it, it gave you a chance to, to prove your whiteness in, in a way. Um, so I think that's what, what you see happening. And, and I mean, in, in that sense, the, the involvement of European migrants who had some kind of stain uh, at, uh, initially uh, in mob and in, 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 in lynchings um, uh, is also fits in this pattern. Yeah, I, I think for, let's say, our Irish listeners, uh, what happened, you know, the fact that Dennis Carney was at the forefront of the movement against the Chinese in San Francisco, you know, uh, himself an Irish migrant, and how something that you also mentioned in your introduction, draft riots take place in New York and Philadelphia yeah. against uh, African Americans in uh, 1863, around during the time of the American Civil Wars, involving Irish migrants targeting. Yeah. Uh, but it, but it, 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 it's a very general mechanism of people who are at the bottom of, uh, uh, let's say, the hierarchy, allowing them to become more, to, to, to enter the in group. I mean, it, it's, you see it, for example, now in many uh, uh, countries where Muslims are being uh, 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 stigmatized, um, that those Muslims who shed, who say, who renounce their religion and, and very openly uh, become secular, and then by doing that, uh, let's say attacking the group uh, uh, where they come from, this is also a, a kind of an exam uh, showing that that you're worthy of entering, let's say, uh, uh, the majority group. The same is true for. Uh, for Jews in the 1930s who were confronted, let's say, native Jewish Dutch, and I use the Netherlands as an example, but this is a very general thing, who were confronted with Jewish refugees after 1933. Yes, they helped them, and yes, they set up uh, uh, um, uh, humanitarian committees, etc. But at the same time, they also gave in to anti-Jewish, anti-refugee rhetoric in order to protect their own position. So, uh, that, that, so, so, and so uh, apparently this is what, um, let's say many, what many people in, um, in a stigmatized position, I mean, this is one of the strategies they can choose, wh whatever you think of it. And um, uh, so it, it, it's, it's, it's a much more general sociological phenomenon. Um, so maybe because we're running out of time, we'll come to your, your one of your main arguments um, is that you, you think that four conditions are necessary mm -hmm. uh, and they combine for mob violence to take place against lab, labor migrants. And you label these as groupism, open access, master status and terrorization. Can you explain these to listeners briefly? Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, uh, basically, what, what you need to have an idea of who belongs to your group and who belongs to the other group. And then secondly, uh, there has to be a hierarchy. 
um, let's say there has to be a negative um, a connotation with the other group um, because that allows you again to legitimize for yourself why you are more um, have more rights to certain resources than than the other. So that's the groupism when it comes to master stages. Well, this this is a interesting concept by Everett Hughes that he already developed in a, in a in a uh, article from 1945 which basically um, uh, is defined as, let's say, the, an identity uh, attached to an outgroup that is so dominant that it um, puts all, all, all other characteristics of this group in, in the shadow and also doesn't, doesn't really matter in what context. So Jews will always be Jews, whether they are football players or, or whatever. Huh? Um, and blacks will always be primarily black. Um, so that's what you need. So that that deepens, let's say, this 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 group divide uh, between in and out group. Well, um, open access. That's what I mean. That 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 um, once you have this conception of the out group, but you still have to compete with them so that they have an open open access to to your labor market or housing market. Well, uh, lo- look at let's say the the great migration of uh, African Americans uh, from the First World War onwards to the north and the west of the U.S. And the Tulsa uh, uh, riots in, in, in 1923, for example, there you see that it becomes very tense situations once, at the one, at, on the one hand, think people do, do not have these rights and should be below you. At the same time, you see them uh, using uh, 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 this open access to, uh, to, to, to build their position and maybe even go beyond you. Uh, well, then that, that is asking for trouble, you, you might say. Um, uh, so then, let's say the um, uh, the, 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 the the sufficient and necessary conditions are then in play. Um, so that's why I think these three um, uh, are important. And then the fourth has to do with the role of the state, because of course, in most cases, uh, the police or the army or institutions will prevent more violence because it's not well, for all kind of reasons. So people may still want to go to take to the streets and, and, and go to the Jewish or, or, or African-American or Irish quarter of the town to, to loot and then and, and to kill. But uh, uh, when you're stopped by the police or uh, 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 and, and, and when you're, uh, then people might, let's say, shield back. But once, let's say, authorities allow this or even um, join it, um, and, and lynchings, this is often the case. Well, not joining, but allowing. Well, uh, then let's say um, mob violence is, is, is bound to happen. And, and so that's why this fourth uh, condition um, is crucial. Um, uh, and and uh, well, at least so, because let's say, so state violence and, and the, mon- mon- monop- the monopoly of violence, uh, as uh, Weber has taught us, is is crucial in, let's say, preventing the ultimate step. And that's, uh, well, in all these cases where this mob violence happens, uh, the state is either absent uh, or not strong enough or, uh, and sometimes even joins. uh, So the the, the case of the Koreans um, in 1921 in uh, in Japan uh, is, is one of these cases, but there are many more. And whereas in South Africa and the townships in the, in the last 20 years, you see that the police just uh, uh, um, is absent and, and, and 
let's uh, uh, and let's file in, take its course and only later on let's say enters the townships and, and, and maybe then ends it that, that uh, so that's well to explain why I think what matters in in, in what really triggers these these kinds of um, and of course vice versa it teaches you why it doesn't happen yeah so it it's it's it, it, it teaches it it it, it uh, teaches you both to, to understand why it happens and 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 let's say vice versa as what are the prophylactics against uh, uh, why in most cases this does not happen let's be glad yeah. and you also state that you know and this we're maybe coming full circle because we started with uh, van arkel who taught you in leiden and you say that your findings bear similarities to what people like him have written to about to explain anti-semitism are let's say, the targeting of Chinese minorities. But um, this open access seems to distinguish your work. Yeah, absolutely, because it, let's say in, in his work on, on, on anti-Semitism, of course, there was no open access. Jews were, were limited to certain uh, occupations, and these were most occupations that others did, the Gentiles did not do. So, well, this, this is a, a, an argument why it is good to limit myself to... Uh, if I would not have limited myself to labor migrants, this um, this uh, element of open access would not have shown up so prominently. So I think that that, that shows why it was a, a good idea not to throw the wet the net too wide, um, which which of course does not mean that uh, let's say violence against outgroups uh, to understand violence against outgroups. Also, this exercise is irrelevant. Of course, it's also very relevant, but it's with labor migrants. It, it's uh, it has a specific um, uh, context that you have to keep in mind. So we, we've been talking for the last half hour, mostly, you know, um, in broad strokes, um, through time, and also quite theoretically. But maybe can you illustrate by using some of the case studies you use how this works in in a in a particular uh, context. So I, I yeah. know, for instance, you, you wrote a brilliant um, paper on um, the targeting of Indian Muslims by uh, Burmese workers in the 1930s. Could you, you know, and this, for me, was very enlightening because a lot of my course that I focus on nativism is, is very Anglo-centric, you know, uh -huh. like Australia and the United yeah. States and stuff. So this opened my eyes up to um, this taking place elsewhere. Yeah, I think the the, Burma, the Burmese case is interesting. I mean, so we're talking here, well, Burma was still part of the English Empire and India was. So in, in a way, it was an internal imperial migration of Indian workers to Burma uh, at, the, at, at, at the time that Burma really uh, became a mass global exporter of rice, especially. So, and this leads in the 1920s and 30s to all kind of violent more violence against Indian um, uh, workers, uh, both uh, Hindu and Muslims, but especially Muslims, by Burmese, uh, by native Burmese. And what you see happening there is partly competition, but um, what, what plays a very um, um, uh, important role is the building of an, a notion 
of Burm, uh, of the of, of Burmese national identity and and um, uh, in, the Burmese intellectuals who had been who had been socialized in 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 these kind of ideas, especially in London, um, and that's of course what you see a lot in in, in uh, the history of imperialism is that the the later nationalists already had all kind of contacts in, uh, let's say, the centers of the empire, be it Paris or London. Um, and there's, so there's very interesting work on this uh, has been done more recently. So they came back with notions of nation uh, uh, and nationhood that they then mixed with, so it's a kind of creolization of ideas uh, mixed with also Buddhist uh, uh, conceptions, uh, so you get you get a mix of national and religious um, identity markers, which are then instrumentalized against, especially the uh, 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 Muslim Indian workers um, uh, in in Burma, who are seen as a threat not only to uh, at the labor market, but but also to Burmese identity. In general, and and this, and also to Burmese women. So let's say mixed marriage is also seen as as, as, as very threatening. So um, uh, so what you see is a kind of foreshadowing. Let's say the current conflict in Myanmar um, uh, uh, against the the Rohingya, for example, or this Muslim uh, uh, minority, which has deep roots in in the 1920s and 30s. But it has so there. Let's say it, it's more the cultural. Uh, issue that is at play, but but within a, a context of, of 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 let's say mass labor migration. Another um, um, uh, uh, case that 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 uh, that is very interesting uh, to me, which which also will be elaborated in the book, is is South Africa, but more much more recently is, uh, the post-apartheid South Africa, where you see that let's say African immigrants from Nigeria, from Zimbabwe, from from all the countries north of South Africa are being targeted by native black South Africans in the townships. Um, and here, you see what, what you see here, although also all kind of cultural ideas play a role that, so, so this is a kind of a, a, a internal anti-Africanism, uh, you might say, but more importantly there is that, let's say the ANC, the new regime has not delivered on their promises to have a coherent uh, welfare state that shields uh, their citizens from unemployment and poverty, et cetera. So there's all this rhetoric about it, but in practice, not much is done. At the same, and if you then, let's say, uh, uh, have a situation in, in which the outsiders uh, are allowed in, in your living, in, in your residential area and in at the labor market, uh, well, and, and the state uh, 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 authorities uh, do not really interfere. Yeah, and then that's much more this competition uh, uh, element. Uh, so it's, it's, it's the, the opposite of what you see in the Gulf states, uh, where there's no competition um, and no rights. Well, here there's also no rights, but there's, there, there is a competition, or at least people perceive it as competition. Um, uh, so here, uh, the the... the uh, the explanation is very much tied up with yeah, frustrations about not being seen, so that the social contract between the South African state and their citizens is, 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 is broken or, and, and not uh, 
uh, held up at all. And 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 then outsiders are easily targeted uh, as let's say the the root cause. So these so these two examples from well one from Africa one from Asia, yeah I think think they they show that. This model that I'm working on, which is very much rooted in, in European experiences, might have a larger global significance. And uh, so the third area which I will look more uh, into is, is Japan. Um, and because Japan has this tradition of, well, not wanting to be an immigration country, but having uh, from the 1920s onwards, and this party of the imperial project, of course, and, and uh, and the occupation of Korea, uh, having 10,000s of Koreans and, and, and later on 100,000s, even millions now, working at their labor market. And Japan seems to be a little bit in the middle of the Gulf states of South Africa, you might say. So, so partly they have their own position. It's, also, it, it's a segregated labor market, but not entirely. So, um, so I think that, that Japan might be an interesting litmus test to see whether the ideas that I have developed so far really, they should work there as well. But there are not many instances of mob violence apart from this uh, earthquake uh, incident in 1923. But well, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So if I don't find more of these incidents, but maybe I will find them, and then after, then I would expect that the prophylactic factors are in in play, so that that either they are really there's a segregated labor market, or in combination with a with a let's say well functioning welfare state, so that competition is not felt uh, directly. So these are the this will be my the, after I've looked more closely into South Africa, this will then be a, a, my third chapter for the book to come. Okay, Leo, it sounds brilliant, and I'm looking forward to reading it in detail. Um, thanks so much for agreeing to take part in the podcast. Okay, it was a pleasure, and, and nice to, uh, to talk to you again, Ariel. You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhub.ie. You can also follow us on various social media and if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhub.ie.